0: And welcome to episode number 160 of Turkey Book Talk. Thank you for listening. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. In this episode, we're going to hear from Dilek Kurban, fellow and lecturer at the Hertie School in Berlin. And the author of Limits of Supranational Justice, The European Court of Human Rights and Turkey's Kurdish Conflict published by Cambridge University Press. The book gives us a detailed examination of the engagement of the Council of Europe and the European Court of Human Rights in relation to Turkey's Kurdish question particularly since the early 1990s as well as how European institutions have handled or arguably mishandled, the whole issue. Before we get started with the interview, let me remind you here that you can find our entire archive of episodes going back to 2015 at turkeybooktalk.com check out our new Instagram account as well just search for Turkey Book Talk podcast or one word and remember that you can support the podcast by becoming a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon joining as a Turkey Book Talk member gets you numerous extras including an exclusive discount of 35% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman history series every one of the hundreds of Turkey Ottoman history titles published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury is available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 35% discount members get a Special code to use at the online checkout, and that deal is valid for all physical books, pre orders, and ebooks. If you'd rather read these interviews than listen to them, then you're in luck because Turkey Book Talk members receive a PDF transcript of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including many extras that have not previously been published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, I also send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of the episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication, which is obviously ideal if you want to delve a bit deeper. To become a member, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, 3 €3 or £2.50 per episode. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3, 3 €3 or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. There are no prior commitments or strings attached, you'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now, on our conversation with Dilek Kurban. I started by asking her to go back to the start, really, and to talk about how Turkey first came under the jurisdiction of the European Court of Human Rights after its ratification of the European Convention on Human Rights back in 1954.
1: A lesser known fact, actually, is that Turkey is among the very few 12 countries that drafted the European Convention on Human Rights right after the Second World War. So Turkey joined the Council of Europe immediately after the organization was founded, and then was among the 12 countries which drafted the European Convention on Human Rights. But during the negotiations, Turkey was within the group, including, which also include the United Kingdom, which was more sort of skeptical in a way of this human rights regime and actually wanted to create a weaker human rights system rather than a stronger one. For example, one of the issues in the negotiations was whether the court that would be set up later, which became the European Court of Human Rights, should have compulsory jurisdiction over member states or whether its jurisdiction should be optional and left to the discretion of member states. And that decision was made with a very close vote. And Turkey was in the majority, decisive majority, which decided that the court should not have a compulsory. Jurisdiction. So we have a country which joined this uh, human rights regime out of realpolitik considerations, really. You know, it was after the Second World War, in the context of uh, this sort of bipolar world, the Soviet Union and the United States, and the international legal and political order was being shaped, and Turkey had made its decision to take its place in the Western alliance, you know, becoming a NATO member, etc. So this was just part, you know, it was on the menu, basically. The understanding was that, you know, Turkey had to be a member of the Council of Europe. And in the, or, in the beginning, you know, no one, even those who advocated a stronger human rights regime really predicted the emergence of a strong human rights court. When the European Court of Human Rights was established, it was a part-time court. It did not have compulsory jurisdiction. The individual's right to petition the ECHR to take their cases to the ECHR was also left optional. So it was you know, up to member states in ratifying the European Convention on Human Rights to decide whether or not they would allow their citizens to apply to Strasbourg. So it was a very weak court. Court. And actually, for the few first decades, you know, the 60s, 70s, the ECHR, the European Court of Human Rights, the acronym is ECHR, left really a very low profile. But then, you know, slowly this court started to become a powerful court by basically uh, creating its own competence and and declaring uh, for itself the powers that were not necessarily envisioned for it. Then came the end of the Cold War and the enlargement of the Council of Europe. So after the collapse of the Berlin Wall, former communist regimes, central Eastern European countries, started to also join the Council of Europe and, of course, also ratify the European Convention on Human Rights. And in 1998, very important reforms were made in the ECHR system, whereby the European Court of Human Rights became a full-time court. That was 98. Meanwhile, going back to Turkey, during the 60s, 70s, as I said, the right of individual petition wasn't anyway available. So victims of human rights violations in Turkey did not have the means to go to Strasbourg. The only mechanism that was available in theory to hold the Turkish state accountable for its human rights violations was what is known as the interstate complaint. That's the second mechanism by which cases can be taken to the ECHR. That was there from the beginning, but it has historically been and continues to be an extremely underutilized mechanism. The idea being other member states could have taken Turkey to court. And they did, but it was mostly the cases that were filed against Turkey were mostly cases filed by Cyprus for Turkey's occupation of the northern part of the island and for its human rights violations there. So these cases did not concern Turkey's human rights violations within its borders. There was only one case, one interstate case that were brought by several Western European countries, France, few Scandinavian countries, the Netherlands, specifically for for human rights violations in Turkey. They filed this case right after um, the military coup d'etat, 1980 military coup d'etat in Turkey. And the case concerned systematic torture in prisons across the country, in addition to other violations such as the, the closure of trade unions, restrictions on uh, freedom of speech, ex- um, association, etc. So that was the only time, one and only time to this day, where member states challenged Turkey for violations within its borders. But unfortunately, that case ended up being settled by the states parties behind the closed doors, basically. You know, friendly a friendly settlement was reached, and there was never a judgment. So. the situation was like this basically until 1987. And in 1987, three very important developments happened on that very same year. One, Turkey made an application, filed a formal application for EU membership. And secondly, the Turkish government, and this was under Turgut Özal, Prime Minister Turgut Özal, accepted the right of individual petition. Özal volunteered Turkey to give its citizens the right to take their cases to Strasbourg. Why did he do that? In order to enhance Turkey's chances for becoming an EU member, because at the time already, European Parliament had made it very clear that this was a condition. Basically, if you want to be an EU member, you have to accept, you have to give your uh, citizens the right to individual complaint and also accept the court's compulsory jurisdiction, which Turkey did in 1990. I'll come back to that. But the third development that happened in 1987 is that, in the context of the armed conflict or civil war that had started between the PKK and the Turkish military in 1984, the Turkish government, again under Turgut Özal, declared a state of emergency in the Kurdish region, which, of course, is a contradiction, isn't it? You know, at the same time, the same year where the government allowed its citizens to take cases to a European human rights court. It also declared an um, emergency rule, which granted extraordinary powers to the military and civilian authorities in the region, which then enabled gross human rights violations that we can talk about later. So this this was a milestone, 1987. In the 1990, finally, Turkey accepted the ECHR's compulsory jurisdiction, meaning Turkey said, I do accept the ECHR to issue rulings in cases brought you know, through individual petition, but also interstate complaint, and I'm going to comply with them. Um, but just to note, Turkey was the last member state to do that. And again, this was done under significant international pressure. All of this was done under significant international pressure. So basically, we have a country which joined this human rights regime at a time when nobody expected the European Court of Human Rights to emerge as such a powerful and activist in a way, human rights court. But then once it did, it really... Resisted the authority of the court and resisted as long as it could to subject itself to the jurisdiction of this court.
0: So that's the background. And the book details multiple examples of Kurdish politicians and activists applying to the European Court of Human Rights, particularly in the 1990s after the court's authority was effectively expanded. And one of the pioneering groups in that process was the Insan Hakloda Derani, the Human Rights Association and this was a very important association it is a very important association it's uh, seen as being basically the first civic organisation that was established after the 1980 coup and it started out as you describe in the book as a quite a generalist group but it ultimately came to focus almost exclusively on the Kurdish issue in the early 90s and up to today and it's still active today what's significant about that group its origins and what's significant specifically about the, its interactions with the European Court of Human Rights?
1: I mean, that's really a very fascinating story. I came, you know, of course, I knew I knew the work of the you know, Human Rights Association. But of course, doing fieldwork for this book, I got to interview its former and current leaders and members nationally and also in the Kurdish region and was just fascinated by the story of the emergence of this group and also its development in in, in subsequent years uh, it, I mean ihade I'm going to use the Turkish acronym just because it's easier Ihade itself İhade merits a book for its on its own hopefully in the English language certainly also documentary it's just um it is fascinating so the thing is human rights Association well, is actually Turkey's first it's not just the first um in, you know civil society organization established after the coup but it's the first national human rights organization in Turkey in general. So at its origin, so what is Ihade? At its origin, it's actually, in a way, a merger, a coming together of two distinct groups who were mobilized after the 1980 military regime. The first group was families, families of political prisoners. After the coup d'etat, Turkey was governed by a military regime out in 1983, a brutal, brutal military regime whereby, you know, hundreds of thousands of people were put in prison. There were a lot of political prisoners. There was torture, systematic torture in prisons, and families would gather in front of prisons, you know, trying to reach their loved ones. Of course, there was a lot of incommunicado, you know, many of the prisoners were held in incommunicado detention, couldn't um, have communication with the outside world certainly not with their families. So these families, as they gathered um, in front of prison doors, they start to, of course, talk to each other, meet with each other. And these informal gatherings, in the end, led to uh, the uh, formation of the İhade. The second group was, also simultaneously emerging, was a group of intellectuals, Turkey's intellectuals, academics, you know, lawyers, um, you know, opinion leaders. Uh, They were also uh, in the leadership of late Aziz Nesin, the great um, author, Turkish um, um, uh, novelist and you know literary figure, so they were mobilized and they were also um, you know they were they filed this very famous uh, petitions called uh, the intellectuals petition, uh, asking for the end of the um, military regime and release of political prisoners, etc. So at some point, these two groups came together and they started to meet in, you know, how people, their members' apartments in Istanbul and Ankara, and eventually İhade was established in 1983. It's a national organization, headquarters in Ankara. The second branch was established in Istanbul, which is still very, very active. And the third branch was established in Diyarbakır, which is, you know, the largest city in Turkey's Kurdish region, the unofficial capital, let's put it that way, for the Kurds. So the third office, İhade office, is established in Diyarbakır. At the time in Turkey, there was n- there was no human rights training. There were no human rights cl- classes on human rights at law schools in Turkey, let alone classes on the European Convention on Human Rights or the European Court of Human Rights or international law more broadly. You know, there was just no specialization, no expertise on human rights among the legal community. So coming back to Ihade Diyarbakır, soon as, you know, after it was established, it was led by very young with some exceptions, the, the leaders and the members of this group were extremely young, recent graduates of law school. And in Turkey, law school is undergraduate. So you graduate at the age of 21, 22, extremely young people, inexperienced, who had no formation on international law or human rights. And so they were there. My focus was, you know, the field work that I did. Although I did, as I said earlier, I did talk to, I did interview the national leaders of the IHADE as well. But my focus were Kurdish human rights lawyers who were members and leaders of the IHA Diyarbakir in the 1980s and 1990s, late 80s and early 1990s. Because what happened was this, you have these newcomers, inexperienced Kurdish lawyers sitting in an office and then emergency rule, right? There's emergency rule and there are Turkish military and paramilitary forces under the leadership of the Turkish military and the guidance and control of the Turkish military start to engage in gross human rights violations, so judicial executions enforced disappearances torture and forced displacement in rural areas and this was systematic and the numbers were huge so the story that these lawyers those kurdish lawyers were telling me was you know that they were inundated basically by uh, by applications ...from either victims themselves, torture victims, for example, and in most cases, families of disappeared individuals or, or murdered ones. What, of course, enabled also state violence in such a large extent was the complicity of the Turkish judiciary, right? Because what was happening was, you know, the victims were immediately going to prosecutors making complaints, saying, you know, my son has disappeared, my village is burned, etc. And the prosecutors were not doing anything in most cases. Nothing. No investigation. They were not even opening a case. So the the Diyarbakır, became in a way a natural address for human rights victims to go to. An unofficial, in a way, body to seek justice in. So that's how it started. You know, they started to um, file cases. And at the time it was very easy to apply to Strasbourg. You did not have to know English. And that's another amazing thing about these lawyers. None of them spoke English. None of them. So they didn't know about human rights. They didn't know. They had no experience with the ECHR. They didn't speak English. They had no networks, access to transnational networks to seek help abroad, etc., and they were operating in a region governed by um, emergency rule, where there was systematic state violence, also targeting the lawyers themselves, right? So these lawyers really brought these cases at great, great personal risk. And of course, some of them, I mean, many were prosecuted and arrested. Many were held in incommunicated detention, subject to ill treatment. Some were tortured, and some were disappeared and then finally murdered, like the ones in Ihade's Elazu branch. So this is how it began.
0: Now another character who looms large throughout the book is uh, Tahir Elchi, another pioneer really, and he obviously is a very well-known figure now he was killed in 2015 in pretty murky circumstances in Derbaker while delivering a press statement on the street at the time he was I think the head of the uh, Derbaker Bar, Bar Association. Mm-hmm. And he really got his start in, in his career, essentially, petitioning the, the ECHR throughout the 1990s from Jizre, Kurdish majority town in southeast Turkey. And uh, he, that was obviously a very difficult job to be doing. He was um, often detained, tortured, and pretty badly threatened for, for the work that he was doing. Just talk about that particular work that he was doing in the 1990s and why it was pioneering, or significant at least.
1: Yes, so there were, in terms of who were taking cases to the European Court of Human Rights from the Kurdish region, there were two two groups broadly speaking. One was um these lawyers that I mentioned to you, the what I call them first generation iHade, the Arabic lawyers, a, a very small group who operated under the iHade premises. But at the same time, what was going on was there were few individual lawyers who were acting in their individual capacity in the Kurdish region. One was Tahir Alchi, indeed. And Tahir's case is also extremely fascinating. Um, And it is my regret that, you know, Tahir was a very old and good friend. And I I had interviewed him multiple occasions for other projects. But it is my great regret that I did not get to um, do a lengthy interview with him for this particular book. Because when I was doing the fieldwork, Tahir, as you mentioned earlier, was the president of the Albuquerque Bar Association. He was very busy. I did see him the last time in um, April 2015 during my field work. And then no- November, as you said, he was killed. So we never got to do that interview. But of course, I know the story a little bit. So Tahir was a lawyer in Jizre. Now, Diyarbakir was dangerous enough, but if you're talking about very small place like Jizre, to do human rights lawyering there was even much more you know, daring and dangerous. And yet, Tiger started there because that's his home. That was his hometown. He was born and raised there. So after he graduated from um, also Dijle, um University Law Faculty, if I'm not mistaken, but anyway, he didn't study in Jizre. He went back. He opened a small, you know, practice, a legal office of his own, and he started taking cases. And that's also, of course, another remarkable thing. Jizre was also a place where there was a lot of, um, you know, forced displacement. The entire civilian population was basically subject to state terror, extrajudicial executions, ex- So there were a lot of cases coming, I imagine, to tie here. And he was going to Strasbourg. And that, of course, that had a huge cost for him. You know, his office was raided, his entire files were confiscated, taken from him, and then he was placed in um, incommunicado detention where he was severely, severely tortured. First of all, I had heard of this, this torture story from Thayer himself, but I also read Tahir's story, that you know, the, the this what happened to him during this detention in the early 90s at the report of a UN special rapporteur uh, on torture it was. So he was, of course, tortured under in, the poli- in, the, in the detention center where he was held. But in one instance, he was put in a, a car, and a van, a minivan, from <clears throat> what I remember, blindfolded, and then taken to an area outside of the city, was completely naked, blindfolded, handcuffed. And they start shooting around him. You know, they, they basically said, we're going to kill you here. So Tahir was this amazing, amazing, dedicated, very smart, driven human rights advocate. He never gave up. Eventually, of course, after this experience, he moved to Diyarbakir and he continued taking cases to the European Court of Human Rights. So he continued. He never left the Kurdish region. He continued there. He eventually became the, the, the head of the Diyarbakir Bar Association, as you said. And then he was murdered under circumstances implicating state responsibility. To this day, we do not know the individual person who shot that bullet that um, killed Tay here? But there is no doubt, to my mind, or to any, uh, to the mind of any human rights advocate in Turkey, and certainly uh, lawyers in the region, that that bullet was shot by a police officer. We just don't know the motive. Also, whether this was intentional or it was an accident—that also we do not know. But what Tahir, just to maybe briefly talk about his legacy, I mean, his legacy is, it is not possible for me to summarize in a few sentences, but in terms of the ECHR litigation in Turkey, Tahir won some landmark judgments at the ECHR, which set precedent not just for victims in Turkey, but for the entire ECHR system. But anyway, I mean, it's just very difficult for me to just speak about Tahir in such few words. But he was someone who really, really, truly dedicated his life to the pursuit of um, justice and accountability. I mean, one of the things that he really was dedicated to was to challenge and bring an end to the impunity regime in Turkey and to seek justice on behalf of um, victims of gross violations. And tragically and ironically and very sadly, he then became a um, victim of this impunity regime himself. You know, there's no accountability after six years after he was killed. But it is it is his and other his his colleagues' collective efforts that that brought these cases to to to to ECHR and wrote precedent ju- setting judgments.
0: Now let's take a broader perspective here, really. The book is very critical of both the naivety of the European Court of Human Rights in dealing with Turkey and also its cynicism or Europe's cynicism more broadly in overlooking many of the um, rights violations in Turkey, basically due to real politic. And uh, obviously that fits into this broader narrative of EU appeasement, essentially. Mm-hmm. And this idea that um, the EU and its institutions and the Council of Europe Have been remarkably indulgent of Ankara, actually holding back a lot of criticism, turning a blind eye to various issues for political reasons. And this reality of a soft touch is actually very much in contrast with the perception of many nationalists and government supporters in Turkey, because there is this image far from EU institutions, European institutions being a soft touch. There's instead this image of, you know, Brussels, for example, constantly haranguing Turkey, judging it, looking down on it and applying double standards very unfairly. So there's this huge difference in perceptions, really. Just wonder if you could talk about that, you know, that difference between rhetoric and reality, uh, specifically in the, the dealings of the European Court of Human Rights with Turkey.
1: To start with that latter point, you know, the ECHR, so, my, you know, my book is about, well, the Turkish case, you know, the Kurdish conflict and the European Court of Human Rights dealing with it. But it really speaks to a broader issue. And, you know, I take this as a case study to find answers to a broader question, which is, you know, when you have an authoritarian regime, which Turkey is, engaged in state violence, gross, gross human rights violations, right? We're not just talking about freedom of expression restrictions, but, you know, uh, torture, killings, disappearances, et cetera, against a minority group. So how should we understand the effectiveness of a European, of a supranational human rights court, right? What are the possibilities for a supranational court, human rights court to be effective? What are the limitations? There are, of course, limitations. First of all, let me say that, you know, a supranational court, by definition, is outside, uh, is remote. It does not have a sophisticated grasp of the domestic uh, you know situation on the ground the legal situation the political context etc does not have access to you know evidence witnesses to the extent that a domestic court has and most importantly of course lacks enforcement powers right I mean European Court of human Rights judgments are binding sure but what can it do when a government doesn't comply with it and governments don't comply sometimes nothing really right and also the court itself cannot do anything. Also, because in the European system, the enforcement is in mechanism is the committee of ministers, which is the executive organ. So it's a political process. The governments, basically, governments of Council of European Member States, they are in charge of enforcement. They do have enforcement powers. The court doesn't. So with that caveat, though, the court still has possibilities, I argue. You know, I started from the story. I had the story. I, knew, I met these lawyers in 1998, and I've known them since then. We became friends, colleagues. partnered, I studied them, I worked with them, etc. So the story was always with me, I wanted to write this book. But what was new to me when I started working on the book was the literature, academic scholarship on ECHR. And when I looked at it, I was really struck by the fact that the consensus in scholarship was, and today still is, that until the enlargement that I mentioned earlier, you know, post-Cold War enlargement, when, you know, post-communist members joined the Council of Europe, until then, this was an effective court. In fact, it's the most effective court in the world. Okay. I mean, the numbers are few. We don't have that many human rights courts, but it is, but the perception is that it's an, it was an effective court. It's just after the enlargement, it was basically uh, overburdened by an unmanageable docket, et cetera, et cetera. This story, this duality that there were old members who were liberal democracies adhering to the rule of law. And who were only committing minor violations versus new members, post-communist, whose rule of law systems were weak, they were very emerging democracies, very fragile, and which introduced systemic human rights violations to the system. That duality, of course, doesn't explain Turkey, obviously, because of Turkey was there from the beginning. It is an old member state and which always engaged in human rights violations, including gross human rights violations, not to mention, of course, periodic coup d'etats. So from the beginning, actually, it was enabled by the system more broadly. Of course, the court didn't have anything to do until, as I said, 1990. But before that, the interstate mechanism was available, right? France, for example, Germany, they could have taken Turkey to the European Court of Human Rights for torture in the 60s, 70s, 80s, but they didn't do that. Then comes the European Court of Human Rights. And of course, the court. To start from the positive, the court did issue very important judgments. It did do that. And in the beginning, at least in the what I call the golden age in the ninety until the early two thousands, until two thousand one, really was also flexible to a certain, to a great extent, really in its um, in its admissibility rules, somewhat flexible on evidentiary issues. So let's let's let me put it this way: the court was more willing in the beginning to really listen to Kurdish, you know, victims. And to enable them to bring their cases. Having said all of that, the court did not do its best. What I argue in the book is that when it comes to authoritarian regimes, and I'm not talking about liberal democracies here, the measure of effectiveness cannot be compliance, right? Because they don't comply. Even if they pay compensation, these regimes don't change their practice, basically. So what I argue is that effectiveness should mean two things, really. One is the court doing its best. And what I mean is using all the powers at its disposal, all of its resources. And secondly, is it open and does it remain open to the legal mobilization of victims and give a day in court to victims who are denied that domestically? And in both grounds, the ECHR has utterly failed in Turkey from the beginning, even in the 1990s. So this relatively golden age I call it but of course it was also problematic then came to an end by two simultaneous and then what developments that then became you know, intertwined in a way one is again the enlargement as i mentioned earlier council of europe enlarged new members came in with systematic systemic problems having to do with transition from communism especially property issues So the court, the court has had an unmanageable ducat, basically. It just became overwhelmed. At the same time, Turkey started to make progress in the EU accession process, right? Under AKP. Reforms had started earlier, but AKP came to power in 2002. And then they started passing these reforms. That came at a time when the ECHR was really very, very open and willing to cooperate with governments who were open to create new remedies at home in the domestic system in order to take the cases from the ECHR. So that just worked. And the image of Turkey at the time, which was also created by EU, was that there is a new Turkey, which is opening a new page, and we should give them a chance, which, of course, was also true. I mean, Turkey was making progress. But basically, the combination of these two made the ECHR, you know, it opened a new phase where actually ECHR started to really collaborate with the Turkish government. What was happening was Turkey was was creating new remedies at home, also partly under the EU pressure. For example, the right to constitutional complaint in 2012 all citizens in Turkey were given the right to take cases to the constitutional court, which meant yet another procedure To exhaust domestically before going to Strasbourg. And it worked. It worked for EU. It worked for the Turkish government. It worked for the ECHR. It just did not work for human rights victims. So I know that I'm giving maybe a lengthy answer, but it's just, you know, it's just such a complicated and long process. But you use the word naivete um, in your question. And that's certainly true to a certain extent, at least in the first phase. Let's put it that way. In the beginning, I think we could say that the court was naive. You know, there's also the founding myth, right? The myth, in a way, that the Council of Europe was founded by li- these liberal democracies. And Turkey, although Turkey wasn't founded, it joined right away. So it's just the, the idea that a member state, which is su- assumed to be a liberal democracy, would engage in... Enforced disappearances, the kind that was happening in Central America and actually in um, dictatorships in South America, like Argentina, um, Honduras, etc. It just was anathema in a way, right? I think that there there, there was a naivety there, there for sure. And what was also complicating the picture really was that there was a civil war going on in Turkey, which was framed by the government to be um an, uh, terrorism. So Turkey's defense before the ECHR was counterterrorism. You know, I am engaged in counterterrorism, and the ECHR has always, not just in Turkey, also in the UK cases, has always been deferential to governments in cases concerning arguably terrorism issues. So it's not just naivete, right? It stopped being na- na- naivete at some point, and it really became actually an active collaboration and an, an enabling force. ECHR became an enabling force. And the EU, I mean, just very briefly to touch upon that, EU was similarly, you know, acted similarly. I think the two greatest uh, mistakes that the EU did was a to open the accessions prematurely by deciding that, in the in the language of the European Commission, that Turkey has sufficiently, quote unquote, fulfilled the Copenhagen political criteria. First time ever that the European Commission had done this, used that language with respect to a candidate country. So to, to open negotiations prematurely, accession negotiations, but then to effectively end them too soon afterwards because of the changing political climate in Europe when Merkel came to power, Sarkozy came to power, if listeners may remember. With a very strong opposition against Turkey's candidate, so they made all these mistakes, and then, of course, more recently eu started to actually pursue an appeasement policy towards the AKP government because of their worries of you know over the migration issue, you know the deal that was made between Turkey and the eu so in the end, I mean, you know, I discuss all of these interlinked political legal developments over the course of decades. You know, it's very com- complicated. There are phases. You cannot make a general conclusion, really, about it. But in the end, the ones that clearly lost in this whole story are, of course, hu- human rights victims and and human rights advocates and lawyers.
0: Now, the very idea of supranational justice, the idea of an international court having jurisprudence over a national legal system, when you think about it, it really does actually almost play into the hands of populism, you know, it provides this very useful bête noire to blame for governments or cite as this usurper of the national will. And obviously, you know, accepting the primacy of international legal systems over national legal systems and national sovereignty is obviously a very sensitive subject for many states. You know, I'm thinking of how, for example, the European Court of Justice and the European Court of Human Rights. ...provided that function in the United Kingdom for years, and that was ultimately one of the factors that fed into Brexit. And I'm just thinking, you know, in the Turkish context, there's a similar dynamic actually at work, particularly in the last few years. Activists, civil society groups, political actors appealing to European institutions to apply pressure on the Turkish government... It's actually very easy for Ankara to turn around and then, as it does very often, say, stop complaining to foreigners, stop betraying the country. And that argument has particular force in the Turkish context where, you know, of course, European powers were seen as these predators seeking to dismember the Ottoman Empire and often using minority groups to gain leverage at that point. So it has very deep roots and it makes it much more complicated, I suppose, really, for for activists and lawyers appealing to the ECHR. It really becomes a double-edged sword in that sense. That dynamic is always there in Turkey's uh, interactions with the ECHR. And um, most recently, that dynamic can be seen, I think, in the case of uh, Osman Kavala. And that is probably the most famous or notorious case that has gone through the ECHR. The ECHR has called for a very long time now for Kavala to be released he is this uh, philanthropist businessman who's been in jail for years now initially it was on Charges of of trying to foment the Gezi Park protests to overthrow the government, apparently, and then later he was accused of links to the coup attempt in 2016, failed coup attempt. He denied both of those, and obviously many people say that the the evidence is very flimsy. Of course, indeed, the European Court of Human Rights has called for him to be released, citing that flimsy evidence, and Turkey is basically just ignoring those rulings now, and. Always, that we, the thing we hear from Turkish officials, uh, including the President Erdogan, is that this case is clearly an example of uh, his lawyers and, and Kavala himself betraying the country and it's a concerted effort from those officials to basically place the European Court of Human Rights in that framework as this imposition on Turkey that is trying to infringe on Turkey's sovereignty you know that is the that is the rhetoric that comes through i just wonder if you could conclude by talking about the kavala case where it's going if it's going anywhere it looks like there's a kind of stasis there and there's very little that uh, the european court of human rights can actually do about it there is talk now that Turkey's on the verge of an expulsion process being launched from the Council of Europe. But again, that could be a very long process. So just conclude by talking about that case and uh, what direction it's going in.
1: Certainly. Uh, I just, you know, when you when you started asking the question, I realized that I did not answer part of your earlier question, which, you know, sort of this populist nationalist reaction. And I'd like to say a few words on that, if I may, before I come back to Kabbalah judgment. And just to also give one interesting example I would about society, because you mentioned that individuals also change their minds, right? I mean, not everybody is sort of ideologically very consistent. People are also can be very pragmatic. To give an example from the, you know, AKP cadres, let, let me put it that way. You know, before the um, uh, AKP came to power, when Muslims, devout Muslims, were outside of, you know, when they lacked power and they were being discriminated, especially through the headscarf ban in the 1990s, they were going to Strasbourg. You know, I had done research earlier on this. One big group that litigated in Strasbourg were members of today's adherents of political Islam. One group was, of course, the uh, women with headscarves who were denied higher education. But the other group was politicians, political parties, Refah Party, welfare party went and uh, you know and lost in in ECHR its successor fazilat party went to ECHR it's not that even these individuals or political entities who pay lip service to anti imperialism and and um, nationalism etc you know when push comes to shove they do use these mechanisms the other example are individuals who are accused to be of Gudenists after the coup. After the coup failed coup attempt in 2016, th- hundreds of thousands of people have been subject to purges, confiscation of property, passport confiscations, you name it. Range number of human rights violations. And there are thousands of applications that were filed before the ECHR, probably by some individuals who before would portray the ECHR as this biased partial court. I mean, certainly, as a political phenomenon, it is interesting, we should pay attention to it. But I think the court itself, or the EU itself, should not, you know, we shouldn't give that much credence to that. Now, coming back to Osman Kavala case. That's actually a very good example because now the judgment itself is good. It's important. It's very strong. That's fine. Although there are aspects of the judgment that can also be criticized. But the question then is what happens next, right? As I said earlier, the ECHR doesn't have the powers to enforce its judgments. It goes to the Committee of Ministers, which is made up of governments, of member states. So it's a political, from then on, it's a political process. This case has been waiting before the, European, before the Committee of Ministers for too long now. And the Communist, Committee of Ministers keep meeting. It has these sort of regular meetings um, several times a year, which each of which lasts a few days. And there's been just so much pressure from human rights groups in Turkey and in Europe for the Committee of Ministers to act, because it does have the powers to do something, actually. Most importantly, to suspend Turkey's membership. The Council of Europe can do that. But first, to start infringement proceedings. Now, the Committee of Ministers keeps threatening Turkey to do that, but they just don't do that. Is the system, meaning the ECHR system, meaning the Council of Europe more broadly, is it doing its best, right, using all the resources and tools at its disposal? And the answer is, again, no. The infringement proceedings to this day has only been used once against one member state, that is Azerbaijan in the famous Mamadov case, and that's also very recent. And that concerned, I mean, I don't want to, of course, diminish what happened to Mr. Mamadov, but one, only one political opponent who, you know, was held in free trial detention, and of course it was also Article 18 violation. But just think about Turkey, and we were we've been talking about you know the Kurdish-Kurd conflict. And I only in this discussion, I only been I've been only talking about gross human rights violations. But there are also cases concerning political rights, democratic rights of the Kurds, dissolutions of political parties, detention of Kurdish parliamentarians, mayors, elected Kurdish officials, their stripping of their political immunities, whatnot. There is a state policy, a very clear set policy on that. This has been happening for decades now. There are six or seven Kurdish political parties dissolved by the Constitutional Court, each of whom won a judgment before the ECHR. Yet, neither the ECHR says this is state policy in Turkey and it's an Article 18 violation, right? Before Kavala, the court has never said that, and later in the Mirtas, so two cases so far. Nor does the Committee of Ministers start infringement proceedings when Turkey doesn't comply with these judgments, or the Council of Europe broadly starts the process to suspend Turkey from membership. And this is a more general problem in the system. To this day, in its history, the Council of Europe has only once started the process to suspend the membership of a member state, and that was Greece under military dictatorship. It was only then when there was a you know coup d'etat in Greece, a military um, regime came to power, who then declared a nationwide emergency on the pretext of fighting communism, that there was a communist threat. And in that case, the whole system reacted. The European Commission at the time, there was a European Commission on Human Rights. They actually sent a fact-finding mission to Greece. They went to Greece and they decided, actually, there is no ground for an emergency rule. Then they came back, wrote this very strong report, and the Council of Europe decided to trigger this process, upon which the junta left the Council of Europe themselves in order to save themselves from the shame of being expelled from the Council of Europe. Why didn't the system, you know, Council of Europe or, of course, the European Commission did this to Turkey, where there was emergency rule in the Kurdish region for 15 years? You cannot have an emergency rule for 15 years. It's supposed to be temporary. Yet the European Court of Human Rights has never questioned Turkey ever on the legitimacy of that decision, whether there was a need of emergency, nor did the Council of Europe start a suspension process towards Turkey. Coming back to Kavala, it is, of course, a big discussion I am a strong advocate of strong measures. You have to, as a, especially as a you, you know, human rights regime in court, you yourself have to hold your standards. I mean, a court, a human rights court like the European Court of Human Rights cannot act with realpolitik considerations, with pragmatic considerations, with the question of, oh, let's not anger Turkey because it would backfire you know, what the implications will be for victims and lawyers. And I always get that question. And my answer to that first is, well, look at history. Clearly, this other policy hasn't worked, right? So why not try something else? Secondly, going back to the example you gave earlier, the UK, unlike the UK, I argue, Turkey is reliant on Europe, on being connected to Europe. Turkey is not like Russia. It cannot afford financially, politically, militarily being suspended from the Council of Europe. It just cannot. But it is faced with such a weak EU and also Council of Europe, which are, of course, distinct institutions, but very much interlinked. You know, what it sees, what Erdogan sees when he he looks at European institutions and governments is fear and chaos. And lack of policy and coordination. And then he, of course, justifiably thinks, you know what, I can just keep Kavala in prison. And who loses here again? Kavala himself and, of course, Demirtas and others. Also the Demirtas judgment, Sel Selatin Demirtas, previous co-chair of the Kurdish party. He also has been in um, jail now um, for several years. It took the ECHR to even take his case, to issue a judgment in his case, three years At the time when he was imprisoned on dubious terrorism charges, he was the leader, co-leader of Turkey's third largest political party. And Turkey is supposed to be a democracy. His political party was represented at the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe. Demirtas and his colleagues were European politicians and not just Demirtash, of course, dozens of them, they were stripped of their parliamentary immunity, put in jail on dubious charges, and kept there. And it took the European Court of Human Rights several, three years, if I'm not mistaken, to pass a judgment, only by the way, on Demirtash, whereas his similarly situated colleagues are still waiting for a judgment. You know, when I look at the story, and having studied this so closely, especially the Kurdish question, it infuriates me. The European courts, but also European unions, lack of solidarity, lack of urgency vis-a-vis, you know, this minority who is at the behest of the majority in Turkey will always be, and who are being effectively disenfranchised through the dissolution of their parties, through um, the imprisonment of their leaders. Would they have allowed this to happen in France? Probably not. And I think that then says something about the value in a way that is given to democracy, civil society, human rights in Turkey. And I think the onus is really on the European institutions, political legal institutions to hold their own standards, particularly against authoritarian regimes which now whose numbers are multiplying from within also, right? I mean, this is going to be a bigger and bigger problem. And I think that Turkey was the first hard case, the hard case in the Council of Europe system, in the human rights system, European human rights system, and the regime itself, the human rights regime has failed. Had they acted more strongly, had they been more, the courts and the member states in general, used all of their powers, brought infringement proceedings, you know, really act to suspend Turkey, I argue... Turkey would have changed this course. Turkey would not have been able to continue this, make this far and st- still engage in state violence in 2022 and then not set a precedent for latecomers, Russia, Poland, Hungary, whatnot. So I think that that's why I believe that the Turkish case and especially the Kurdish conflict and the ECHR says something bigger about the system and of course also supranational courts in general. That was
0: Dilek Kurban. Very many thanks to her for joining for episode number 160. Remember, if you enjoy Turkey Book Talk, you can support it by joining as a member on Patreon. Membership gets you that 35% on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by I.B. Taurus and Bloomsbury. Transcripts of every interview. Transcripts of the entire archive of interviews. Access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account and pledge $3, 3 €3 or £2.50 per episode. You can also support Turkey Book Talk by rating it on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. Follow via our website turkeybooktalk.com or via our Twitter or via our Facebook page or at our new Instagram account of course or all of them. Recommend Turkey Book Talk to a friend or a foe and I always enjoy hearing from listeners so do send any feedback or abuse to Armstrong at gmail.com. And finally let me once again remind you to check out a friend of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is a weekly email newsletter that's put out by the journalist Diego Cupolo, a package bringing together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some excellent puns. Just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links there to subscribe. And by the way, they've also just set up a very useful Slack channel. So do have a look there if you're interested. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening.